Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. We just finished up chapter 13 in the parables. Especially, uh, I'm thinking about this last one that really ties the parables together. For those that teach and those of us who listen, the importance of tying the Old Testament together uh, with the new. He talks to the disciples about being householders or overseers or pastor teachers and who bring out treasures, things that are new and old. And when you study the whole Bible, um, you find these treasures. There will be at least two, if not three, places tonight where we'll have prophecies being fulfilled from the book of Isaiah that are in chapter 14 and chapter 15. So we're switching gears, and um, in verses 1 and 2, it says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. In other words, the word is out, all these mighty Wonders were being done. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work at him. Now, from verses 3 to 12, we'll read why Herod killed the greatest man who ever lived, who was John the Baptist. But verses 1 and 2, this is not in a chronological order. Herod is freaked out. He's scared to death because he thinks... Uh, His conscience is bothering him extremely because of what he did to John the Baptist. His paranoia is that John has come back to life and is really, that's who Jesus is, is a resurrected John the Baptist. Now, um, Jesus said that John was uh, the greatest man who ever walked this planet. Of all the men who were ever born on this planet. He says there's, there's never risen a greater than John the Baptist. He never did any miracles. He was foretold in Malachi chapter 3 as uh, the forerunner and that he last, his last words were, he must increase and I must decrease. Now how's that for a verse to hang on to? Jesus must increase and, and I have to decrease. Those were his some of his final words. Now we find the reason why, and we'll do a little sidetrack here. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. All right, so um, Herod had a brother named Philip, and he was um, using today's terminology, shacking up with Herodias, his brother's wife. And John said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Um, John was a man's man. In describing him, he said, when you guys went out to see John the Baptist, who'd you go out to see? A reed shaken in the wind? No. In other words, a guy with no spine or no backbone. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid. If John was the greatest, I would put Herod up there with one of the most evil men who ever walked this planet. And here, John, um, having no fear, um, quotes Leviticus chapter 18 when he says it's not lawful for you to have her. Um, I'll read that, but I want to come back to it. For although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitudes because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. I imagine it was a very sensual, very seductive uh, dance. 
um, because that's the type of person uh, that Herod was. He was sadistic. Um, and seven, therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. So after she, she puts on this uh, sensual dance before Herod, he's having this, this great big party, and he says, what do you want? I'll give you anything and you want. And it was Herodias who put her daughter to go up to Herod and say, okay, whatever I want. What I want, we read here, is the head of John the Baptist, and I want it brought here on a platter. And we read that in verse 7. Therefore he promised an oath. So she, having been prompted by her mother, that would be Herodias, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry, and he probably just went, Oh, boy, did I walk into that one. Because he didn't want to do it. Nevertheless, because of the oath and because of those who sat it with him at the table, he commanded it to be given to her. And so uh, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And um, his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. All right. We are living in a society today, not much different than what Herod had here. And he quotes, he's saying, what you're doing, Herod, isn't lawful. The first thing I want to point out um, for you and I today, to call a spade a spade, um, even if it's not politically correct, sin should be called sin. And uh, you should not fear man, like Herod did here. He was afraid to upset the guests. And uh, instead, he quoted Leviticus. I'm going to take you back to Leviticus. So let's go to uh, Leviticus chapter 18. I'll give you a chance to get back to it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Uh, Chapter 18. This whole chapter is... in called the Laws of Sexual Sins. All of chapter 18 of Leviticus is the law. But this is sectioned out now, and it gets very specific of of, um, sexual relationships. We definitely have incest in the the picture here. But the, the, the verse that John the Baptist is referring to is verse 16, where it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. And that's exactly what Herod was doing. So when he, he was said, you're not keeping the law, Herod, he stood up to a man that would have loved to have killed him just for saying what he said. It's your, uh, it's your brother's nakedness. Now, the rest of the chapter gets very specific from verse 1 all the way through the end. Um, if you go to verse 21, we see a verse on abortion, modern-day abortion. You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And I, this is uh, where... Um, you know, why was John called the greatest man who ever lived? Because it was more important to him to stand right before God 
than it was before the society that he lived in. He's I, this, this thing where you call a spade a spade. That's sin. And for me to say, say what I just said, some people will say, well, Dwight, you know, this is this Old Testament stuff and it's not pertinent and relevant to um, the, the New Testament. Okay, so let's go to the New Testament. And first of all, let's turn over to um, uh, Romans uh, chapter 1. And we'll have two places in the New Testament that deal with the issue of what we read in verse 22, where it's an abomination for a man to lie with another man. Um, In verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they know in their heart that there's sexual sins that are wrong. But because everybody's doing it, um, they suppress that truth, even though they know there's a God and they know that this God has standards and primarily sexual standards. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal God had empowered so that they are without excuse. Before I came here tonight, I was watching an interview with uh, two astronauts who um, have a new program coming up. And uh, they're basically talking about the wonders of this planet that we live, live on. And they had a perspective from space, and that's, they're, they're taking it as astronauts. And they're talking about stuff, and I'm thinking, guys, wake up. You're talking, they're, they're talking about the marvels of the human brain with its uh, trillions of charging um, neutrons all going off at the same time so that we evolved over millions of years. And I just, <laughs> when I heard it, my heart just stopped. And um, let's just use common sense for a second. Ever since we found out about DNA, man is without excuse. There is a creator. You can't have the design without a designer. And to explain it away, because um, of millions of years of time and chance that we developed what we've developed into is sheer lunacy. And I say to these guys, they are very pumped up and extremely positive. And they had a magnetism to them. But basically, um, they're... God is holding them accountable, these two guys, because of creation. They see the wonder of it, but they explain it away, and therefore are, are, um, are there without excuse. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their minds, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, and these guys sounded... They got to have this whole new program that they're promoting that'll be coming out. You'll, you'll see it sooner or later. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and beast and forfeited beast and creeping things. You're nothing more than something that evolved. You're no different than any 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 other animal. Well, if that's your foundation, then why not act like any normal, any other animal? Why have a moral basis? Therefore, verse 24, God also gave them up to their uncleanness 
the lust of their hearts to dishonor their body amongst themselves, who exchange the truth of God for the lie. <clears throat> What's a lie? Well, you're nothing more than an animal. Might as well just act like one. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even if they did not like, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Uh, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. Here's Herod, and here's his party. Uh, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, de- deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, they are backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy. That's quite a list, isn't it? Unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, and who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Okay? We live in a society today um, that uh, homosexuality is pretty much the norm. You can't watch a commercial, see a TV program that doesn't have some sort of representation of the, uh, the homosexual community. Well, who are you going to be? John the Baptist? Or are you going to be a Herod and succumb to the crowd and, um, and, and let that person literally... Um, die in their sin and not lovingly warn them. One more place. Let's go to First Corinthians, um, chapter six. The argument is, well, that's Old Testament stuff. Well, it's, these are the uh, two main scriptures in the New Testament that talk about this uh, particular sexual sin, but it's no different than any other sexual sin. Um, we read in verse 9 of chapter 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? These are the big words right here. Do not be deceived. Well, everybody's doing it. It's just natural part of our society. Well, it's not a part of what, what the word of God says, that if that's your standard, uh, he gives here the list. But he prefaces it by saying, don't be deceived. Don't let society fool you. Don't let your emotions fool you. Either you stand on the word of God as a final authority, or you have no authority. And the reason I'm going here is to encourage you as, uh, as Christians, as sheep, to have the mentality of a John the Baptist, who says, this is what God's word says about this particular issue. End of discussion. And that's the reason, that's what makes a man a man, and that's what makes uh, 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 why Jesus called John the Baptist, one of the reasons, the greatest man who ever, ever lived. Notice that homosexuality is not the first one on the list. Fornication, well, what's that? Well, that's sex outside of marriage. Uh, nor idolaters. 
nor adulterers. Well, what's adultery? Well, that's what Herod was doing. He was, um, uh, his brother's wife was married, and he was having this affair with her openly, and everybody knew it. And then it says, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, but then the list goes on. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Question, what does it mean you will not inherit the kingdom of God? It means if you're not going to go to heaven, okay? And if that's true, then what, what does that mean? That means that person is going to go to hell and die in their sins. And so when we have an opportunity to use an example like Herod, compared to a man like that Jesus held up as the greatest, then this is a word of encouragement. Gang, don't compromise. Um, uh, the, the, the old saying, uh, hate the sin and love the sinner, applies. You know, when the next thing says in verse 11, and such were some of you. Um, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus by the, the Spirit of God. Uh, this scripture here, verse 11, um, deals with the issue, well, I was born this way and there's nothing I can do about it. No, this actually says, and such were some of you, but now you've been changed. God washed away that sin, and... Um, you're under his grace, and God looks at you as we call the word um, uh, justi- justification, just as if you've never sinned. And so here's the list, and if this is the lifestyle, don't be deceived, and stand your ground, and um, you will lose <laughs> friends, and uh, you'll be accused of being a um, fill-in-the-blank, you know, narrow-minded, bigot, homophobe, and so on and so forth. But Jesus said, if they hated me, don't you think they're going to hate you too? So the issue is not a personal one. It's not what I feel or what I think. You guys should care less of what I feel or what I think. The question is, what does the word of God have to say about this particular issue? So what are we doing? Well, we're reading through the book of Matthew tonight. And we just ran into a guy who is very much like our society today, uh, who's ruthless, and um, um, sensual would be the, the word here. And um, he committed murder. For what reason? Why was John the Baptist killed? He was killed because John said to him, it is not lawful for you to give her to her. And um, that's from Leviticus. Verse 13. Now, we're going to tie verse 13 into verses 1 and 2. When Jesus heard it, heard what? That Herod had killed John. He departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. The Lord withdrew because he knew that Herod's fear. What was his fear? Well, Jesus is John the Baptist. And uh, would cause Herod to freak out and, and come after the Lord. The Lord knew this man wanted to avoid, and he wanted to avoid an incident because, for one reason, he's not afraid of Herod, but his hour had not yet come. And when his hour would come, he would freely let the guards take him away. But this is not yet his time. 
So when we read here that Jesus departed, why did he depart? Because Herod would have been looking for him, and so he gets out of Dodge. And, um, but not that he's afraid, but that uh, it just wasn't his time. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. And it was evening, and his disciples came to him saying, this is a, a deserted place, the hour's already late. Lord, send the multitudes away, that they may go to the village and buy some food. And Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You guys give them something to eat. And their response was, Lord, all we have is five loaves and two fishes. And the Lord says, bring them to me. And then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. Now this um, miracle here um, is the, the feeding of the 5,000 is probably one of the most important of the miracles that Jesus did. And the reason I say that is because it's the only miracle that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, It's recorded in all four of the Gospels. None none of the other miracles are listed in all four, but this one is. And we find um, more information given to us in another Gospel that they actually were divided up into different groups. And so he commands them to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up to heaven. And he blessed, and he broke. And he gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the multitudes. Wouldn't you have loved just to have been sitting there to watch this thing happen? You know, where did the miracle take place? You know, they just kept reaching into a basket and just kept coming and just kept coming and just kept coming. And he broke and blessed, and the disciples gave it to the multitudes, and so they ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. And those who had eaten were about 5,000. And then it says what? Men. And then says, besides the 5,000 men, there were women and children. These were families, but they were only counting the men. We're talking, let's just say one, <laughs> one woman for one man and one child. We have a family. That's 15,000 people, not 5,000. So when you hear the miracle about the feeding of the 5,000, it's really the feeding of the 15,000. And, um, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be like living in America where you can, you're, you're full all the time. They had a full meal and were satisfied, and they had 12 baskets of, of uh, leftovers um, that was remaining. In other words, everybody went home with a full tummy that night, and there was still enough to have leftovers the next day. All right, verse 14. Notice again, yeah, verse 21, 5,000. Uh, let's finish up uh, this part here. So all in all, there was about 15,000. Now, the word immediately here um, 
is sort of straightway is sort of a word of urgent, swift movement. And we have Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was alone there. So um, by now the boat is in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves of the wind, was contrary. After this full day, the Lord goes away by himself. He sends the disciples on ahead. We read here... Um, uh, the multitudes at this time were, and, and the other Gospels, actually wanting him to um, become king. What, when we take this here and we read John's account, let me just fill in the blanks here just a little bit, um, why the Lord was in haste. John gives us reason from his Gospel. When, there, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, in other words, we would sure like you to be king. Anybody that can, can pull a rabbit out of his hat like that every time there's, there's a need, what a great social program, what a great king you could be. You need to be our king. And John fills us in that we're going to take him by force to make him king. He departed again into a mountain alone. Let me just say there's a reason that we go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because you get the full picture when you put it all together. Matthew doesn't tell us here the reason Jesus went. John does. They were, they were saying, you need to be our king. Nobody can do this. And so, again, um, John is the one that tells us that uh, they wanted to make him king. So let's go on to when he finally comes down. Verse 24, the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, the fourth watch is the morning watch. It would be from 3 a.m. in the morning until daylight. So from 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock is when this event would have taken place. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear, and Jesus, sensing their fears, immediately spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It's I, don't be afraid. And so, you know, I'm trying to put myself in the story. And, um, you know, you're seasoned sailors, and there's a storm that you're, you're fearful of, and all of a sudden, here's a guy walking on the water, and they just think it's a ghost. They're freaking out. And the Lord says, don't worry about it. It's me. And Peter, he said, it's sort of a test, I think, on Peter's part. He says, Lord, if it's you, then command me to come to you on the water. Now, I want you to put yourself in Peter's sandals for a second here. He asks to come out, um, and he does. And when had Peter had gotten out of the boat, 
he walked on the water to go to Jesus. This is amazing. Um, We stop the boat uh, when we go to Israel, and we point out different areas. We point out where the... um, uh, the swine would have run into, there's only one place it could have happened. And we can actually point to that place that we're there. But we also talk about the reality that Jesus actually walked on these waters. I call it an A site. And not only did the Lord walk on water, but he also allowed Peter, he says, come on, Peter, go for it. And Peter begins to walk on the water to go to see Jesus. <laughs> this is my line. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and he probably thought, what in the world am I doing? This, I'm in the middle of a storm here. This is crazy. And beginning to sink, he cried out, and here's the shortest prayer in the Bible, Lord, save me. <laughs> Help, I'm going down. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, well, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? You know, why did I doubt? Lord, I'd... he was freaked out that uh, he, had, he had done this. Now, there's a, whole, there's a whole Bible study here, gang, that's important. First of all, I commend Peter for not being able, not being afraid to get out of that boat. He says, Lord, is that really you? If you can do it, why can't I do it? So give, let's give Peter some credit here. And he actually was walking on the water until he took his eyes off the Lord, he put his eyes on the storm, and that's when he began to sink. And yes, there's a whole Bible study right in what I just said. In life, you're going to have a lot of storms, and there will be a lot of trials. You know the old song, um, Uh, Keep your eyes upon Jesus. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. They do. Some of you came into the Bible study tonight with problems, difficulties. All of a sudden we start worshiping the Lord. We get our eyes off the problems. We get our eyes on the Lord. And we begin to wonder, what was that trial I was going through anyway? And it happens every single time. Chuck used to have a, a saying about... Peter getting out of the boat. And um, he'd say, go for it. He was always encouraging people just to go for it. And if the Lord's in it, you can, you can come back and, and uh, say, well, that was the Lord. But he wasn't afraid, like Peter, to get out of the boat. Peter got himself uh, in, in, in a problem here. Here's a quote from William Carey. Um, Expect great things of God and attempt great things for God. Certainly Peter did that. I'm afraid that most of us are satisfied with little things for God. Notice that Jesus uh, did not rebuke Peter for asking. He challenged him, why did you stop? Why did you take your eyes off me and doubt that you could do this? How do you know what the Lord can do unless you take what we call ventures of faith, just stepping out and doing something for the Lord and um, uh, doing the miraculous, that things that only God can do. And as long, any trial that a person goes through, as long 
as you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll make it through the storm, and he'll get you through. Good place for an amen. All right, so we find here, uh, um, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly you're the son of God, but let's not miss the the miracle in verse 32. As soon as he gets in the boat, the storm is over. The Prince of Peace is in the boat, and the storm is over, and um, then they began to worship him. And just think of the day that they've had, feeding 15,000 people, and then coming to them 3 o'clock in the morning, walking on the water. Pete gets out and does the same thing. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Now, when I mentioned earlier, we stopped the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and there's only one place. And um, this would be, where we read right here, the land of Gennesaret. That would be, if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, in the northeast part of um, the Sea of Galilee, that area. So when they came to that place, the men of that place recognized him, and they sent out into all the surrounding region, and they brought to him all who were sick, And begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. So the multitudes, the word was out. And John, again, says to the point where they wanted to, at that place, make him uh, the king of Israel. Now as we get into chapter 15... Um, we're leaving now the Galilee. And um, no, the, the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus. So they came up from Jerusalem. They had heard all these things. and uh, But instead of being impressed, they become hypocritical and legalistic And in verse 2 it says, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat their bread. And Jesus said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God because of your tradition? So now it's like this. There's this debate going on. Let me give you an example. When we go to Jerusalem... And we go to the the, uh, the Western Wall, sometimes called the Wailing Wall. It's a great big open area. But in order to go up to the wall, if you want to, you have to walk through a corridor. And they have um, a built-in multifaceted faucet for you to wash your hands in. Every Orthodox Jew will go in, and he will already have his, his skull cap on his head to cover his head. For uh, Gentiles coming in, they have paper ones that you can put on your head. But, um, you know, I just I like to just stand there and watch these guys because they come in, they have this whole ritual, exactly how to do it. There's a certain way to wash your hands, and that's what they're talking about here. And instead of going, 15,000 people were fed, and there's miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, all were made perfectly well. Instead of being impressed and in awe, they find fault through their tradition. And so the Lord 
calls him on it. In verse 4, for God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Now, there's some pretty strong words. One week from this Sunday is Father's Day. And um, uh, we're to honor our fathers and our mothers, care for them. Um, They had a custom that what the Lord is doing here is they had a way of getting around it just by paying money into the the temple and disregarding this uh, honoring and actually taking care of mom and dad. A lot of us have been through that. Some of you are going through it right now. Parents are getting to the age where they need to be cared for. And um, um, we help them and, and uh, as best we can. There are cases that they need um, help. I'll use John Collins for an example. John, with the Parkinson's, could no longer um, maintain just being at home, and he needed 24, 24-7 care. So let's take it on from here. Verse 5, but, but you say whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me has been dedicated to the temple, is releasing from honoring his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandments of God of no effect by your tradition. You hypocrites. This is one of the strongest words in the Bible. And now, verse 8 and 9 is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Now, I like to make a big deal of this. Remember last week we were studying the parables? The teachers are supposed to take and put the old and the new together and bring them out? Well, that's what we're going to do right now. I'm going to have you turn to Isaiah chapter 29. So let's all turn in our Bibles to it. And let's connect the old with the new. Isaiah 29 verse 13. The Lord pulls this out and basically is saying this is a fulfillment of it. Verse 13, inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from far from me. And we go back to um, Matthew chapter 15 and a direct quote, and he points his finger at the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, did Isaiah prophesy? Here's a prophecy about them, these people draw near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now in verses 10 through 20, then he called the multitudes and he said to them, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth defiles a man. But it's what comes out of his mouth. This man is defiled. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said to them, Every plant which my father has not planted will be uprooted. Leave him alone. 
They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both are going to fall into a ditch. I, I, I love that. And then Peter answered and said to him, Lord, would you please explain what you just said, this parable? And the Lord said, are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? That's not what defiles a man. And of course, this was a big stumbling block for Peter a little bit later when the gospel was going to be given to the Gentiles. Um, What you could eat and what you could not eat, we call it being kosher, was a big issue. Here the Lord is beginning to understand, no, it's not the issue at all. That's not what defiles you. And that's all that unclean animals that came down out of heaven right before Cornelius was saved. Those were all animals that were not kosher to eat. The Lord says, Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. He says, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's been common or unclean. And he says, what God has cleansed. In other words, Lord, bless this ham sandwich in Jesus' name. (laughs) That's not what is going to defile you. And neither is the tradition of not washing your hands, which was a big tradition. Verse 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. They defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, being a false witness, a blasphemer. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile a man. We're talking religion versus relationship. Let me say that again. Christians, we are talking religion, which Jesus hates, I hate, and versus what he really wants is not your dues, but what's in your heart. For out of the heart, the mouth, the mouth will speak. And um, these, James chapter five deals with this whole issue of the tongue, which is very difficult to control. And it can get people into a lot of trouble. And he's saying it's what comes out of, of, the, of your heart is what really defiles a man. But, but uh, not unwashed hands does not defile him. The scene changes from here in verse 21, and the Lord is no longer in the Galilee, but he goes to Tyre. This is the first time that Jesus is going to be out of Israel. And he went out from there, that would have been by the land of the Gadarenes, and he parted to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now this is, these are two cities on the Mediterranean. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from the region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is severely demon-possessed. I'll come back to that and we'll do a little sidetrack. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away. Uh, for she cries out after us. Uh, But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now the Lord knows ahead of time what he's going to do here. 
And he's just drawing her out. And he said, no, you know, my job was sent to the Jewish people. And not, um, but only to the house of Israel. But she wouldn't let the thing go. Uh, She had a love, a son. Um, Her daughter was severely uh, demon-possessed. And she was going to do... The word was out, and it had made it all, all the way to Tyre, that all you got to do is touch this guy's garment or just get close to Jesus. And whatever your, your problem is, he will touch it and he will heal it. And so she won't let the batter go. And she came, and she worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Drawing her out a little bit more. Will this, will this drive her away, her de- determination and faith? And she says, that's true, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Healed of what? Of demon possession. Turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 12. Who are demons? Where do they come from? And where are they going? In Revelation 12, we read that one-third in verse 4 of the angels were persuaded by Lucifer to follow after him. And they became disembodied spirits. Um, There are different ranks and different authorities. Again, we could quote Daniel chapter 10. When Daniel was praying, he was going to receive one of the greatest revelations the very day that the Messiah would come. And the devil did did not want Daniel chapter 9 to be written. So we read, it's not in a chronological order, that Daniel was praying for three full weeks. God was going to give him this revelation, but this demon that was called the uh, the prince of Persia was withstanding an angel uh, from being able to deliver this message. Dwight, are you implying that there's angel wars that are taking place? All the time. And it wasn't until Michael the archangel showed up that he was more powerful than the demon of the prince of Persia. And when he showed up, um, then he was able to overcome this other demon. What are you saying? Well, there's different ranks and there's different authorities to demons. Some are so fierce that according to Jude, I think it's verse 6, that there are some demons that are incarcerated and they won't be released until the great tribulation um, or they won't be released at all until the day of judgment. The Lord won't even allow them on the earth. Now I have you here um, uh, looking at verse 7 of chapter 12, where here's Michael again. I just quoted him from Daniel chapter 10. He is a warrior. Gabriel is a messenger. But um, Michael is an archangel. And war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels 
fought against the dragon, that would be the devil, and his angels fought. Angel wars. This is... Um, But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, now we're going right back to the Garden of Eden, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. The whole world is on a fast track. Visa's calling now for a cashless society. How many of you heard that? It might be in the newest place, I'm not sure. But there isn't a week that goes by that there isn't something happening prophetically that we see, um, you know, the coming of the Lord being that much closer. This right here in chapter 12 happens to be in the middle of um, uh, the tribulation period. And we find that Satan is being cast down. And I heard a loud voice saying, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God night and day has been cast down. You know that that's the thing that where Satan is most effective is accusing you, Christians, before our Heavenly Father and he's also whispering in your ear your shortcomings and your... um, He's condemning you. Unless he'll be successful unless you stand on Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Where in Romans 7, Paul says, I know what's right, I don't do it, and I know what's wrong, and that's what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this flesh? And then he says, I thank God for Jesus. Good place for an amen. <laughs> we thank God for Jesus. That's how chapter 7 ends. But Romans 8 verse 1 says, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, there's no condemnation. The devil will tell you what a wretch you are. And you know, you're going to have to agree with him. He says, yep, that's why I say amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. But I got good news. There's no condemnation. Even though the condemnation will always be there. Why? Because there really is a devil who accuses God's people day and night. Well, it's a good thing that sitting on our side in our defense is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, no, Father, that one's mine, and that's has been taken away, and it's all taken care of, no condemnation. But it goes on and on and on. Who accused him day and night before God, and he, now he's been cast down, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Gang, that's just what I just said. You can only overcome condemnation by saying there is no con- condemnation to those who are in Christ. He cannot condemn you. But you have to stand on God's word and not your feelings because your feelings and emotions are going to tell you otherwise. Another good place for it, amen. The word always has to trump your emotion. And if you find your emotion in conflict with what the word of God says, guess what? (laughs) You're wrong and God's word is right. So if you're prone to, you know, Um, getting beat up by the devil and depression. You have to just do what the scripture says, bring every thought into captivity, and weigh it out and see what God has to say about that issue. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. How much time? 
He now has three and a half years at this point. And he goes after the woman who is Israel. Where is the church? Already in heaven. And people are getting saved during this time. I can't spend any more time. Let's go back and and finish this up. I wanted to talk about the reality of the devil and demons because here's a woman who's a Gentile who won't let go of the Lord until she gets what she wants. And um, she hounded the Lord until the Lord says, your faith is great. Let it be as you desire. And from that hour, the demons that were in this little girl were gone. Verse 29, and Jesus departed from there. I like this, skirted the Sea of Galilee. What a beautiful place this is. And he went up on the mountain and he sat down there. And great multitudes came to him and those who were lame and and mute, maimed, and many others, they laid them at Jesus' feet and and he healed them. And so the multitudes marveled when they saw the mute speak, the maid made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified God for all these things. Verses 32 to 39 is just a couple days after Jesus had fed the 5,000. And now we have almost an identical situation. And when I read it, uh, I wonder why the Lord would repeat this. Let's read it and close tonight. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the multitudes because they have now continued with me for three days and they haven't eaten anything. And I don't want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And I want to stop and go, duh, Guys, it's been two days. What happened two days ago? What did you do as we set you down in groups of 50 and 100 and you went out and served all these people? You were the ones putting your hands in the basket and watching a miracle every time you you handed them out. Just two days later. Why is the Lord repeating this? Why does the Lord repeat things for us? Because we are really thick up here. And we learn by repetition and we learn by doing it over and over and over until they get it right. This is just a couple days later. They should have known. And Jesus said, well, how many loaves do you have? Hint, hint. And they said seven and and a few fishes. They should have been thinking, well, it was five and just a couple just two days ago. And he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and fish and gave thanks, broke them. And they had to start thinking, well, this sure looks familiar. And the disciples gave it to the multitude again. And so they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments. How many the first time? Twelve. How many the second time? Seven. And now those who were there were 4,000 men, and again it says women and children. So now we have 15,000 one day. Now we got 12,000 just a couple days later. And he sent away the multitudes, got into the boat, and he came to the region of Magdala. I'll close with telling you how how personal what I just read is. I have a favorite place in Israel. It's um, called Mount Arbel. And... um, 
Uh, it has a view of uh, the Sea of Galilee like, like none other. But right straight down at the bottom of the top of Arbel is Magdal. There's a modern city of Magdal, but they're excavating, as I speak, the ancient city of Magdal. They said they just discovered it. I've known it's been there since 79. And all the tourists, I don't know why they're telling them it's, it's a recent discovery. This is where Mary Magdalene would have come from. She was the first person that Jesus appeared to when he arose from the dead. Jesus loved Mary Magdalene, and Mary Magdalene loved Jesus because he had set her free. You see, she had seven demons in her, and he cast all seven of them out, and she never went home. She's always called Mary from Magdal. And um, she was one of the women that were there early in the morning when the Lord arose from the dead. But the very first person that Jesus appeared to was Mary Magdal, and that, that's the city that she came from. I know this place. I got this picture in my mind as we close the Bible study tonight that he went from one side of the Sea of Galilee and he pulls right up to Magdal. Well, that's just two... I would say two miles out of Tiberias. I know exactly where the spot is. And um, if you've never been to Israel, why don't you consider it? I'll show it to you next time. Good place to stop? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. The reality, Lord, of the spiritual realm is real, that we have a real adversary, that there really are some people that are possessed by devils, And, um, Lord, we're just grateful that you are who you are. As we see that you will someday come and be king, even though they would have loved to have made you king back then, Lord, you had a plan and a purpose for the Gentiles. And we see this, the signs uh, all around us of your coming. And so, once again, we thank you for the scriptures. And um, I pray for any tonight that might be in a storm, that they take their eyes off the storm. Lord, they put their eyes upon you and um, allow them to get in the boat with you and have that storm cease. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.